Hello. Greetings. Thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says the following to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. What Paul says is true here about all the scriptures, but the writings that Timothy would have been acquainted from, from since childhood would have been the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament as we call it. And therefore the Old Testament is a highly relevant part of the Bible to our faith. A lot of times uh, it's kind of the great unknown for a lot of Christians and, and for people out in the world because it's uh, we spend some time learning the New Testament, folks on the New Testament there's so much going on in the Old Testament, a lot of times it can be confusing to people um, and part of the reason it gets confusing is people have a difficulty understanding how to interpret it. And so today let's spend some time considering how we should interpret and understand the Old Testament. Uh, how it might be similar to how we read the New Testament and ways in which it might be different. And to do so we need to understand that there's going to be up to four potential layers of interpretation in any given Old Testament passage. And the reason there's going to be at least four layers of interpretation in the Old Testament passage involves why things were made known in the Old Testament and to what ultimate end they, they serve. So the first level of interpretation is going to involve the direct audience. So in the first reading of a passage, when we look at something in the Old Testament, we need to understand what it would be saying to the people to whom it was originally written. This will be part of the way we understand it in its context, which is the primary way in which we're supposed to understand any uh, biblical text that's foundational. So, for instance, in Exodus chapter 20, uh, God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And continues on with the Ten Commandments. So who is the immediate audience of that? Well, the immediate audience of uh, the message is the Israelites in the wilderness. Um, they're coming out of Egypt and, and God has given them commandments. When Isaiah is writing, his messages that God has given him in the book of Isaiah. He's writing to the Israelites of the 8th century and, and, and later on to the, the Israelites of the 6th century. And so, we have to work to understand, okay, what what's going on here? What is the direct message here? What is What's trying to be communicated to this particular audience? And part of that is going to make sure we understand the covenant under which things are operating. Uh, this can be somewhat confusing to people, uh, but God works with people in it, through different levels of agreement or covenant. Um, in Genesis, through Exodus chapter 20 here, uh, we have information about the days of uh, the creation, the patriarchs, uh, to the day where now God is giving the law to the Israelites. Now before then, 
there was no law of Moses. It hadn't been given yet. And so in this part of the Bible, we have whatever agreement God has made with all people through Noah, uh, maybe the covenant God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, those are the covenants that are under force, and uh, therefore there might be things that are a little different going on. Uh, for instance, as an example of this, a very uh, risque example is in Genesis chapter 38. Uh, in Genesis chapter 38, we have the story of Judah and Tamar. And there's a, a whole lot of interesting things going on in this story because we have uh, Judah who has three sons and he finds a wife Tamar for uh, uh, his wife Ur, his firstborn, but Ur uh, is, dies in the sight of God. And, and so according to the standard Leveret marriage where you, your younger brother marries the widow of the older brother to have children for the older brother, Onan is given uh, Tamar, but Onan wastes his seat on the ground because he just refuses to follow the protocol of of having uh, children for his brother. And God smites him dead, and so Judah knows he's supposed to give uh, his youngest son, Shelah, to Tamar, but he's concerned that Tamar is the reason that they're all dying. And so he doesn't give her to him. And so then Tamar will later on take on the, the, the clothing of prostitute in the days of uh, the, the harvest, and goes out and Judah comes into her and uh, she is found to be pregnant so she's con considered doing this horrible thing of adultery and yet uh, Tamar comes out I am impregnated by the man whose staff and whose um, pledge is this and Judah identify them in verse 26 and says she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son Sheila well um, that's um, there's a lot going on there and we might think there, there are all kinds of horrible things going on there um, in context, it's a story being told to explain how Judah will ultimately have the sons Perez and Zerah, which are going to be important because the whole line of, of David, and, let alone line of Jesus, will come through um, those, one of those children. Um, but we also cannot ha hold either Judah or Tamar to the standard of what will be said about these things under the Law of Moses, because the Law of Moses hasn't yet been revealed. Another example, this is Jacob himself having not only four wives, but two sisters, since you're not supposed to marry sisters in Deuteronomy. Again, um, maybe even something learned by uh, experience here, but you can't hold them accountable for a, a law that comes later. And so, the first thing we're trying to do is to understand a text in its context. And this is also extremely important in the Prophets. Uh, a lot of times people will go interesting and crazy with their interpretations uh, and nuances of what the prophets must have meant. And when you think about what they're saying, it normally refers to life today. And there's no way to really bring it back around and make it something that would be relevant or encouraging for Israelites at that time. That's not to say the prophets won't have a message for a that speaks about a later generation. In fact, many times they do. They will say that after this time of judgment, got, in the latter days, God's going to do something, and it's going to be this form of restoration. It's going to extend hope to the Israelites in the, in the extended future. And it does have a contextual purpose to say, hey, yes, there's bad things coming, but there's going to be good beyond that horizon. And that's very powerful. Uh, but we need to make sure that it makes sense in terms of that original audience uh, that the, the word of God means something to the people to whom it originally came otherwise it it wasn't really what God intended and it wasn't really God speaking okay so once we understand and get kind of an idea of what a message would have meant to an Israelite 
who would have heard it immediately. Then we can see if there is a message to a to the Israelites at a later time. Um, because sometimes the, there's a message for them as well. So, for instance, the great example is the Sabbath. In Genesis chapter 2, um, the Genesis author, after saying that God had rested on the seventh day from all his work in verse 3, said, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, the first level of interpretation is just saying that uh, nothing was created the seventh day, that indeed the God rested on it. When we go to Exodus chapter 20, we see that for, for Israel, that verse 3 that has been kind of explained by the Genesis author is going to be very important because it's going to root what the purpose of the Sabbath is. So in Exodus chapter 20, and in verse 9, remember, uh, after verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, the sojourner who is with you in your gates. For in six days Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So that blessing of the Sabbath day refers back to what was already explained in Genesis chapter 2. And understanding it as a second level of interpretation is critical for that. Because there are some people who say, well, uh, when God made it, he made it holy. That is true to this day. Well, God rested on the seventh day. And for his purposes of Israel, yes, he sanctified it as a day of rest. But then we read in Hebrews chapter 4, the Hebrew author kind of provides a further explanation for our prophet and understanding. Uh, and he ties it to, as he's been talking in Hebrew author, Hebrews author has been talking about uh, Psalm 95, and he ties it back in. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished on the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he says, they shall not enter my rest. So if you notice already here, the Hebrews author is already now looking at Genesis 2, like we mentioned from the beginning, to here in Psalm 95. And since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward, and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So the Hebrews author's whole point here is that if that one rest were the full sufficient rest, he would not have said later, they shall not enter my rest. So he's pointing out here that yes, God rested on the seventh day. Yes, he sanctified it. He sanctified it for Israel. So what is being said there about blessing the, the seventh day as a holy day is for Israel. That the true Sabbath is a one where, just like God, one rests and does not work again. And so again, this is why the second level is of the greatest importance to understand that sometimes there's a message uh, from an original context that will apply to Israel but may not have as much application after Israel um, and should not be read back in. And there's a, a lot of times where we have situations like that. And also we can profitably understand how 
maybe like Isaiah has a message like in Isaiah chapter 1, which was given to uh, the Israelites and especially the people of Judah after the station of 701, but how we could imagine uh, Israelites would have read it in, after the destruction of the Babylonians in 586 and gained some profit from it that way. Um, and also, by the way, especially with the Psalms, everything that we're mentioning here absolutely has great relevance to the Psalms. Uh, every Psalm should first be understood, okay, what would this have looked like and meant first for, for instance, Israel when uh, the Psalm was composed, especially if it's a Davidic Psalm. Uh, what's going on here? Uh, what has David tried to give the people of God a voice to say here? Uh, what would later Israelites look and see it and see it uh, in it? Uh, a very valuable way of understanding these particular passages. So again, the first level of interpretation, uh, Israel is exploring what it, what the context, what it means in context to whoever it was spoken to originally. Then what would it mean for later Israelites? And by later Israelites, we mean anybody who comes later. So uh, depending on the passage, that could be a very long period of time. It may be a very short period of time. And now we have what will be the third layer of interpretation of a passage where there are references to the Christ. Uh, in Luke 24 and verse 27, Jesus says that he has fulfilled all the things in the law and the prophets and the Psalms that were written of him. In Acts 17, uh, in Acts 18:28, Romans 1, 2 through 5, uh, we have examples where uh, Paul will use various Old Testament scriptures to uh, demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ and therefore there are absolutely important and powerful references of in the Old Testament to Jesus and how he is the Christ and what God is accomplishing in him uh, in, in Acts chapter 8 verses 27 to 39 when uh, Philip is preaching to the eunuch he starts with Isaiah 53 and explains how the, the, the Christ is the suffering servant no doubt and so we can see Jesus referred to in the Old Testament in types and in prophecy. So in types, a type refers to a shadow or a substance, something like we see in Colossians 2.17. Uh, so in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, the rock that followed them was Christ. Uh, there's a spiritual reference there. Uh, a lot of the um, great people of the Old Testament are seen as types of Christ. And in fact, Jesus will deliberately evoke these people in his message and in his life and his service. So, uh, Moses is the leader of the people and gave the law, and Moses is a type of Jesus. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, in fact, Jesus is the prophet like Moses, uh, who would come uh, and, and give the people uh, the, the message of Yahweh. And Jesus very deliberately styled himself on that. Elijah and Elisha are prophets who do signs from God, raise the dead. And we can understand why a lot of people would have thought that Jesus was an Elijah or an Elisha. We can also see why he was a Jeremiah, with the way he, he indicted the people for their sins and promised devastation of uh, their temple yet again. Uh, all of these, we see the evocations, we see the ground upon which Jesus would stand set forth here in their lives, in their example. And we can see how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all that they stood for and all they were trying to do for the people of God. And the prophecies, of course, represent a prophet's foretelling of the circumstances of Jesus. Uh, of this, Peter speaks very eloquently in 1 Peter chapter 1. When he says that concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things they have now announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. 
And so what, what Peter does very well there is these prophets would love to understand this, but they were not given the key to understanding. They were able to prophesy as they were able, but they were not given the full story. So Isaiah was told that uh, there would be a virgin who would give birth to a child, and the child would be the Emmanuel child in Isaiah 7.14. Now, in context, in Isaiah seven fourteen, that's a the, the child eating the um, would eat milk and honey before he would know uh, to choose uh, the good and refuse the evil. That I'd be, I within fifteen years, uh, the enemies of Judah would be devastated and no more, and prosperity would return to the land. That's the whole point there in context. That's what it means there uh, for Ahaz, a great example of the different layers that we're talking about. But yet. That child is not Emmanuel in the sense that Jesus is Emmanuel, since God is God and Jesus is God in the flesh. In Micah five and verse two, the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. In Isaiah fifty three, he would suffer and die. And in Jonah, in Hosea six and verse two, he would be raised on the third day. So we see that there are a lot of things that Jesus would do that are said in the scriptures, um, either through an illusion of what God's doing in Israel, uh, or the story of Israel, or through direct prediction of the one to come will be this way and a whole range and gamut of things there uh, to demonstrate who Jesus is what he's about and how it would all go down and it was not understood by anybody until it was all put together after his death and resurrection uh, this is the mystery that has now been made known to us as Peter talks about and, and Paul talks about a little bit in Ephesians chapter 3 as well so yes this is how the the Old Testament can be the schoolmaster that Paul talks about in Galatians 3, 19-25 to lead us to faith in Christ is because we see the story of Israel. We see how God works with Israel and we see how uh, Jesus is the embodiment and fulfillment of that Israelite story. So the th so far we've seen the looking at an Old Testament passage the way it would look to the original con people in context. We've seen that we should look at how it would refer to Israel or later Israelites could understand it. We've seen how it may have reference to the Christ. And now, finally, the fourth level of application would be what can we gain from the passage in terms of our own faith? And what can we apply? And there's a balancing act here because we have to keep two things in mind that are both true. As we saw in, a, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, the scriptures could make Timothy wise uh, to understand things and they were able to be profitable uh, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness that the man of God could be equipped for every good work. Uh, and yet, we also see in Ephesians 2 uh, that Jesus uh, took the law, which was the thing that was dividing people, the law contained in, in ordinances and things of that nature, uh, and um, kind of created this division between Jew and Gentile, and he uh, took it out of the way on the cross, which is also seen in Colossians 2, 14 through 17. In fact, the Hebrew author in Hebrews 7 through 9 will go through this extended discussion of how there, you, you have to have a change of priesthood, like from Levi to Melchizedek, which is he's seeing in Jesus. You have to have a, a change of law. And he goes through to show that there's a new covenant enacted on better promises in Jesus. That, that than the old covenant that therefore is not enacted on as good of a promise which he also goes and shows in detail in Jeremiah 31 is the case and all these passages are going to show us that indeed there is a supersession of covenants um, God I know a lot of people think that's a, a horrible thing to say but that is what the, the scriptures reveal uh, the law of Moses was a unchangeable thing. In Deuteronomy 4 and verse 2, you shall not add to or take away from this law that I have given you. So, when Jesus comes and powerfully fulfills things, uh, it is a situation where 
all is fulfilled, and therefore the law is set aside, and there is a new covenant in Christ. And so we say all of this to say that we are not under Old Testament regulations. We are not bound to anything that is in the Old Covenant that's just in the Old Covenant. And in fact, there's a lot of times where a lot of false doctrines and false ideas and, and terrible things have been done because people have taken things that are only rooted in the Old Testament and something only for Israel and have presumed and projected them upon Christians today. And that goes from everything from instrumental music in the assembly to the system of priests and the temple system in the Old Testament to, in fact, uh, justification for killing people. Uh, and treating your enemies in, in certain ways, like it was done in the Old Testament. And we need to respect the fact there's a distinction in covenant, and that we're no longer under the Old Covenant. Now we say that, and many would then suggest, well, that we think the Old Testament is worthless. And that's absolutely not the case. Because there's a lot of things we can get out of the Old Testament. For instance, as we've seen, uh, it in, through types and prophecies have spoken of us of the Christ to come. And without the Old Testament, we would have no idea why who Jesus was or why he was coming or what was going on. Uh, Jew, Jesus lived and died a first century Palestinian Jew. And if we don't have understanding of Israel, well, that's all not going to work. So much of what the New Testament authors talk about in terms of the nature of holiness and sanctification and justification and, and, and God. It's all rooted in who God is and reveals himself in the Old Covenant and what holiness looks like in the Old Covenant. Yes, those those regulations in Leviticus may be mind-numbing to read, but they really help you understand a concept of holiness where if you you, you, you demonstrate the, the sensitivity to the covenant distinction can get a lot out of that looking in it, uh, in the New Testament way. And as Paul says in Romans 15.4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, there's instruction that we're to get out of the Old Covenant. Um, he speaks of the fathers in 1 Corinthians 10, in the wilderness. Um, even though, to the Corinthians, the fathers were not their fathers by ancestry, by blood. In fact, Paul will go to great lengths in Romans and here in 1 Corinthians to associate a line of continuity where we are to see ourselves as inheriting the promise of Abraham through faith, uh, not by blood, but through faith, and therefore to see ourselves as the spiritual descendants of Abraham and the people of God. And, and that's where we can benefit from this, by looking at Israel as the people of God and seeing that in Christ today, Christians are the people of God. And that we can learn from how God has worked with his people in the past, because it has... Uh, lessons for us in the present. We should not assume that God has changed to the point where he's going to treat his people today differently than he treated his people then. That if his people uh, today do good and observe uh, all the things that God has told us in Jesus, that they will receive blessings like those of old. But we should be, not be deluded to think that, well, if we go and persist in idolatry or other kinds of sin, that God today is going to treat us any differently or any better than he treated uh, Israel uh, of old, the people of God of old. And that's exactly Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 10. Look at how they committed idolatry in the wilderness. Don't follow that example of disobedience or you will have the same consequences. So there's all kinds of great stuff that will go on uh, that you can learn about in the Old Testament that can really benefit faith today. Hey, uh, you think somebody's being nitpicky when they make changes uh, about condemning changes to the way God has told us to do things. Well, look at the little small subtle changes Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, made in the service of Israel. Um, different location, uh, different type of statue, different uh, days, different type of people, and yet that 
persistently condemned Israel for the rest of its time as a kingdom up north. Uh, what about getting fixing yourself in a lot of ways, but leaving a few things uh, unaddressed? Well, Jehu in 2 Kings 9-11 through 11 is a warning about that, uh, where he uh, got rid of Baal service out of Israel, but since he still persisted in the son of, sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, uh, his, generation, his uh, lineage will not continue forever. Uh, these and a lot of other examples will help teach us and it's not just a negative, by the way. A lot of times we go to the Old Testament and see, don't do things like they did. But there's also uh, examples of hope. And there's hope that can be gained in the Old Testament. And that's where we have Hebrews 11, the, the men of faith. Uh, all these examples of faith, uh, from a Abel down to Zechariah, help us to stand strong and to understand that, yes, it'll be difficult to trust in God at times, but God is faithful. And he is worthy of our uh, confidence and acceptance. And a lot of times, a lot of the doctrines of the New Testament are reinforced by things in the Old Testament. So when Paul talks about the fact that um, elders are worthy of, of, of pay in 1 Timothy 5, uh, he talks about how the, you do not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Uh, and that goes, that goes all the way back to uh, a law in Deuteronomy. And that premise is that uh, people should be able to gain produce from the labor that they're ex expending. Um, a lot of times that's what Paul will do is he will underscore a exhortation that is for Christians and he does so in terms of uh, what is also said in the law and that's not invalid, it doesn't invalidate what we said earlier about the law uh, we can look at for instance British common law in America and a lot of times British common law will be used to reinforce and, and underscore uh, American jurisprudence but uh, you'll never get anywhere in the Supreme Court arguing just for British common law if uh, that's not something that's, that's made continuous and reinforced in uh, the law here in America. Because we're under a different code of law now that we are Americans than we were when we were the British. When Paul will talk about um, women's roles in, in those controversial passages in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2, it's important to note that in all those times, he goes back to the issues in the creation in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Um, there's a continuity there in the way that he's understanding something. And, of course, the big example is Jesus himself in Matthew 19. When asked about divorce, he appeals all the way back to Genesis. Um, and establishes from Genesis God's purpose and saw how the law was kind of uh, the hardness of heart of Israel there. And so we can even see there where there's some discontinuity going on. And the reason for that discontinuity, and that trips people up sometimes, but it's there and explained for us for reasons. And that's why it's always important to let the text explain itself and to let Jesus explain himself and not force Jesus to fit our dogmas. That, no, we need to understand the text the way that Jesus would have us to understand it. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the Old Covenant that can even help us understand why things are the way they are here in the New Covenant. But the reason that we do something as Christians is always to be grounded in New Testament authority. If there is something in the Old Testament that highlights it, we can add that in as well to, for, for understanding and edification, but it has to be established from New Testament grounds. So the Old Testament is not worthless at all. There is a, it is a treasure trove uh, of, of, of great information to help us understand who God is, who we are, uh, why Jesus is the way he is, and uh, what Jesus is looking for. And we are foolish, and we are really deprived in our faith and weak in our faith if we uh, are not reinforcing it and, and benefiting in it uh, by good exploration of the Old Testament.
And so I hope that we've seen the principles from the scriptures, that we see that Jesus and Paul are using themselves, and the Hebrews author, to help us understand how to read the Old Testament, that we understand the message as it was intended to its original audience. We can see if the message applies to later Israelites. We can then see how it may refer to the Christ. And then we can see where it may have profitable application toward uh, people even to this day. This is how we can properly handle the Old Testament and learn from it and glorify God in it, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 15, and therefore we do well to seek to understand the Old Testament. We're again so glad that you've joined us. We hope that you've been benefited by this message. If there's uh, any questions you have about it, like talk about it further. If you have a prayer request, uh, like to learn more about us, please find us online at VenezueChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on social media. If I can be of service personally, please uh, let me know. You can contact me at my website at DeVerboVitae.com. We're also... Uh, that's www.deverbovitae.com. Again, thank you. Have a great day.